This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Gateless Gate, Case 26, Two Monks Roll Up the Blinds, the main case. The monks gathered in the hall to hear the great Fayan Wenyi give a discourse before the midday meal. Fayan pointed to the bamboo blinds. At this, two monks went to the blinds and rolled them up alike. Fayan said, one has it, the other has not. The commentary. Tell me which one has it and which one has not. If you have your Zen eye opened at this point, you will then know how Master Fayan failed. Be that as it may, you are strictly warned against arguing about has and has not. The verse. <clears throat> when they are rolled up, bright and clear is the great emptiness. The great emptiness does not yet come up to our teaching. Why don't you cast away emptiness and everything? Then it is so lucid and perfect that even the wind does not pass through. This koan came to my mind after I listened to a, a radio program about, really about the power of thoughts to create our reality. And it is, of course, a very well-known teaching in our school, the saying that three worlds are nothing but mind, the three worlds being the world of form, formlessness, and desire. And uh, this teaching comes from the Dasabhumika Sutra, the Sutra of Ten Stages, which is in the uh, Avatamsaka Sutra. And it's part of the YN school and the YN teachings that essentially says that all things are interdependent. They, they arise together. So thoughts and reality, everything that we see and we experience, arises with mind. It cannot exist independent of mind. It also takes up the teachings of the Yogacara school, consciousness or representation only school, which says similarly that everything that we experience is a product of mind, of our consciousness, which means it is impossible for us to experience anything apart from mind. And, and that actually it is that we cannot experience Yogacara says we cannot experience a thing as it is because what we see is always a representation. And even from a, you could say, a more superficial perspective, I think you know, we all understand that our thoughts affect our experience. That if my thoughts are negative, my experience of myself and the world will also be negative, which will then reinforce my negative thoughts and so on. But this is, this is going further. This is actually saying the thoughts themselves create reality. And mind is indivisible from reality. And so this is true of individual thoughts and of the patterns that they create. And so a single negative thought has the power to then condition the next thought, to make it more likely that the next thought will also be negative. And the more I think, let's say, unwholesome thoughts, the easier it becomes to think them because it, they gain a kind of momentum. And, and we see this, 
This is not hard to understand. It's hard to change, but it's not hard to understand. And so in the Vimalakirti Sutra, when Shariputra and the Buddha are talking about the nature of a Buddha field, Shariputra sees it as impure. And so he makes the logical conclusion. He says, well, then the mind of the Buddha, before he was fully enlightened, must have also been impure. And isn't this what we do when we have a a difference of opinion, where we see the world differently from someone else? It's easy to project our discomfort, our, our view, onto them. You are not seeing things correctly. If you only saw things correctly, then this would be a Buddha field. This would be a Buddha land. And the Buddha reads Shariputra's mind, and he says to him, the fact that some people see the Buddha land as impure is not my fault. I'm I'm paraphrasing. He's saying, it's not the fault of the land either. It's because of their ignorance that they see it as impure. And I remember when when my teacher first uh, read this passage, I remember thinking, Really? I mean, is that all there is to it? So if I see something as impure, then that's the reality? Because Shariputra says to the Buddha, I see this great earth with all its highs and lows, its thorns, its precipices, its peaks and its abysses. I see it all as filled with ordure, with excrement. I see my town, my city, this country, the world with all its strife its prejudice, its injustice, I see it as anything but a Buddha field. So is it just in my mind? What if I'm suddenly or unjustly let off my job or my colleagues spend their time backstabbing one another? Or my partner becomes deeply depressed and is really unable to function? I just Are those just the highs and lows of my mind? And if I didn't see these highs and lows, there wouldn't be highs and lows? What does it mean that they're just in my mind? That's really the question. Because these these teachings aren't just saying that we should think positively. It's also not a a form of subtle gaslighting. They're not saying you're not experiencing what you're experiencing. So what are they saying? And the, uh, a Brahman who's standing nearby is, as Shariputra and the Buddha are having this exchange says, the fact that you see highs and lows is a sure sign that there are highs and lows in your mind. And when Fayan, the teacher in this con, when he was a young monk, he went on a pilgrimage with a couple of his, his fellow monastics, and one day they got caught in a rainstorm, and so they took shelter in a, in a temple. And the abbot, Titsang, welcomed them. And after a few days, you know, when the, the rain had let up, they went to pay their respects before they were, they were getting back on the road. They were going on their way. And Titsang walked them all the way to the gate. And as they were leaving, he pointed to a big boulder on the side of the road, and he said to Fayan, the three worlds are nothing but mind, and all things arise out of consciousness or recognition. So tell me, is this boulder inside or outside your mind? 
And Fayan said, it's in my mind. And Titsang said, oh, you traveling monk, why are you carrying such a heavy boulder in your mind? <laughs> and Fayan decided to forget about his pilgrimage, and he stayed with Titsang until he um, uh, succeeded him. But he said, is it my mind? Or is it the environment, the circumstances? Is it a mixture of both? And as Hogan Sensei kept asking yesterday, how does this question help me to live my life? I was, I was reflecting just uh, a little while ago, you know, that, that in, in a true stillness of mind, of body, when there is nothing arising, then everything is, in fact, just as it is. So it is very much like the, the image that is used in the Yogacara of the mind um, as, as an ocean and thoughts, you know, these individual waves that, that appear. But that's the nature of mind. It, it is bright and clear, like the great emptiness, as the, the poem said, but it also, it's, it's of a nature of mind for it to move and for thoughts to arise and for a wave to appear. And, you know, if it was just my waves, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. But then you're over there creating waves also. And so often they just, most of the time, in fact, they just crash, right? And so how do we in a sense, be large enough for both, that there is a natural, um, still, I mean, we are still in Zazen, it's just, it, it, it's um, deceptive when we're talking about the ocean, because even a very calm ocean is never completely still. But so how do we account, how do we acknowledge that stillness, and at the same time know that it will, waves will appear, and what do we do with them? There will be highs and lows in my mind, so how do I understand them? And last week, we spent a couple of days with, with Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he was uh, giving a retreat where he was um, very systematically just going through all the sutras that he had um, identified where the Buddha spoke of what Bhikkhu Bodhi called social and communal harmony. So basically, the teachings that the Buddha gave that could perhaps point us in the direction of how to live in harmony. And you know, I mean, the sutras, sometimes they can be a little bit dry. They can seem abstract, you know, very philosophical, as the teachings, you know, of the Yogacara and the Yn. And so the, the question that inevitably arises, that I think should arise, uh, after teachings like this, is how do I take this into my life? How do I put it into action? And to me, as practitioners, that is the question to ask. Because th these aren't just schools of thought, although they are that. But it's not just because they're, they're creating interesting intellectual frameworks. The question is, how do I use this? as I'm working, as I'm raising a child, as I'm living, as I'm living my everyday life. And I personally think that it's a question that we each have to answer for ourselves, because that's exactly where practice happens. 
I think it really is the meat of our practice. So these, these profound philosophical teachings, Buddhist or otherwise, the Yogacara, the Madhyamaka, the Prajnamita, Prajnaparamita literature, teachings of emptiness, Buddha nature, all the types of consciousness, interdependence. At the end of the day, what do they tell me about how to proceed in the world where things often are unjust and there are highs and lows and it is not always clear how to proceed, how to take a step. And Fayan was, uh, in fact, very well versed in these schools, especially the Wayan and the, the Yogacara. And so he knew this, just as the teachers before and after him have known this. Because we so often, you know, in these, in these koans, we so often get, you know, he hit the monk with a cushion, he twisted his nose, he raised a stick. Um, and it's just, it's a moment, it's an instant of life that has a very particular purpose and a very particular teaching. But behind that instant, that moment, there are hundreds, thousands of years of these teachings. Millions, perhaps by now billions, of written pages of teachings. And so when Fayan sees his, his opportunity, he takes it. Two monks roll up the blinds, and he delivers really the, the killing and the life-giving blow. One has it, and one has not. So imagine it's the, the second day of the Ango Intensive. It's Saturday. It's the afternoon. Everybody's in the Sangha house. There's 80 people in the Sangha house, and everybody's tired. You know, it's that, that moment in the afternoon where your energy just dips, and you're waiting for the coffee break, at least so you can stretch your legs. And the sun is coming through the windows, and, it's, it's, and in the afternoon, it does exactly that. It, it hits right where the speaker is sitting, if they're sitting against that far wall. And so let's say Shugen Sensei and Hojin Sensei are sitting up on the stage, and the sun is hitting their, their face just so. And so they're squinting. And two people notice that, and they get up, and they go over, and they roll down the blinds, in this case. And one of the teachers, very quietly, almost as if without saying it, but still says it into their mic. One has it, one has not. And now the entire room is completely awake, especially <laughs> the two people who got up, most uncomfortable. Do I have it or do I not? <laughs> what do they mean? I mean, is it me? I mean, the other day he said so and so, so it must be me, I must have it. The other person clearly doesn't. <laughs> I've said this before, you know, how somebody um, one day said, you know, what if we made the call uh, for, and Hojin Sensei's line reminded me, you know, when she was talking about Oriyoki, as we receive this offering, we should consider whether our virtue and practice deserve it. And somebody said, what if we call the line? The Dogsan line is open for those whose, whose uh, virtue and practice deserves it. And everybody just sits there. I don't know. Do I deserve it? Do I not? I don't think I deserve it. And one person just stomps to the back of the room. Boom, boom, boom. Sits down. <laughs> so do I have it or do I not? 
And what's the it that I'm supposed to have? And when Fayan had his own students, a monk asked him, what is the ultimate truth? And he said, first, I pray you will live it. Second, I pray you will live it. I have always loved Fayan's uh, teaching, the way he, he uses words. It's not um, uh, kind of sparkling in the way that, that uh, Yunmen does or Zhaozhou. He often will repeat the same thing, you know, the, the question that was asked of him, or he will turn it just slightly. But it's something, it's, it's so simple, and I find it so potent, so powerful. What is the ultimate truth? First, I pray you will live it. Second, I pray you will live it. Third and fourth and fifth, I pray you will live it. And I won't just pray, but I will help you to see it so you can live it. The Buddha said that there are two ways that we can practice meditation. You can practice like a dog or you can practice like a lion. And so if you throw a stick at a dog, it will chase after it. And no matter how many times you throw the stick, the dog, the dog will always chase after it. They're, they're um, inexhaustible in that way. And so you can methodically take up a thought and see it, even turn it, see its nature, apply an antidote so that it can pass. And this is a necessary practice because it's not like you can just throw away the stick and get rid of it that way. The dog will always go for it. It will always come back. And so you can't just ignore them. Some thoughts you can. In fact, most thoughts you can. But some you have to meet. You have to acknowledge. You have to let in. You have to allow. You have to work with. It's the only way, in fact, that the dog actually finally lies down. But you can also practice like a lion. If you throw a stick at a lion, the lion will chase after you. It's not interested in the stick. It's just going to go straight for the source. That's what it's interested in. Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche says, sometimes let your thoughts flow and watch the unchanging nature behind them. Sometimes abruptly cutting the flow of thoughts, look at naked awareness. And really both methods are looking at the source. And they, they require quite a degree of trust that we don't have to get involved with our thoughts. We may not even understand them. And part of this, this program that I was listening to was a man who went through this period. He doesn't know why. Nobody really knows why. He went through this period where he started having incredibly violent thoughts. That he was going to strangle his wife or drown a child or, you know, incredibly violent thoughts. Not that he could trace to any particular source in his life but incredibly vivid. And the more he tried, he was horrified by them, and the more he tried to suppress them, you know, set them aside, the more they came. It actually got to a point where he could no longer function. He couldn't go to work, he couldn't do anything, because he was terrified that at some point he would actually do it. 
And so, you know, part of the program was, was tracing the, the history and the, the, the thought of thought, you know, the theory of thought. And you're saying, you know, and this was, you know, really more from a psychological perspective, that one way of working with them is to believe, to understand that they do have meaning, that there's a reason for them, and it's usually something in your past. It's your karma. And it's, you know, and dreams are this way also. It gets, it gets uh, disguised sometimes or shifted enough. And, and some of the work is um, interpreting, is understanding what this is so that then you can shift it. And so especially psychoanalysis works in this way, you know, really getting into, I mean, we would call it, you know, really understanding your, your karma where it comes from, and then finding ways to create a healthier narrative. Then another way of, of working with them that actually um, kind of replaced psychoanalysis, not completely, but in, in, to a great degree, is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's basically saying it's not so much the meaning of the thought that's important, it's challenging its validity. It's truth. So will you actually kill your wife? Are you actually unlovable? And the way that this young man actually freed, was able to free himself, is he went to, to a, a cognitive um, behavioral therapist who basically did exposure therapy with him. He took a very sharp, long knife, and he said, OK, now hold it to my throat. And of course, the young man was, at first did not want to do it. And the therapist said, it's OK. Just do this. And they worked their way up to it over a number of sessions until he showed the young man that there was no way that he was going to actually do anything with that knife. Eventually, he did it even with his wife. Basically, to change the, the pattern of the thought by, by, by deeply, deeply challenging its truth. I would not try to do that on my own. I mean, he, he had, of course, um, very perceptive and, and clear guidance in how to do this. But eventually, the thoughts he actually said, they never went away. They never disappeared completely. But now he's able to see it and let it just pass, because now he knows, oh, I'm never going to do this. So it's really okay. I'm not a bad person. That was part of his fear that he might actually be such a person because these thoughts were so strong. They were so real. And so in one sense, he was able to decouple them from his sense of himself. And then the third way is really is mindfulness. Don't give them weight. Don't treat them lightly. It's not about the meaning. It's not even about the truth. Just watch them as they arise and as they pass, because they will. If you don't keep them going, every single thought that you have will pass. So you just witness and watch them come and go. And I think Buddhism is not that it, that it chooses one over the others. I think it's really saying all of it is, is important. All of it has validity, and there's more. What is the source of these thoughts? What is their nature? And so in the Madhyamaka school, 
just the, the middle way school that Nagarjuna founded. And it's basically saying that all phenomena are empty, including mind and including emptiness itself. There were kind of early schools of Yogacara that, that said that mind um, had a nature. And Madhyamaka came and said, well, even mind is empty. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And Madhyamaka says that a past thought is, is really is dead. It's like a corpse. A future thought hasn't been born. And a present thought you cannot locate. And so when you look at a thought, it has no form. It has no color. It has no shape. It leaves no traces. There's no place where you can, you can box it. You can point to it and say, here, there's the thought. You cannot actually even see it as it arises or as it passes. The moment in which it appears or the moment in which it passes. One moment is there and the next moment is not there. And further, it says that you cannot, that a, a past thought is not connected to a present thought. Because if it was, that would mean the, the present thought is actually past or the past thought is present. Right, so that analogy, Dadaroshi used to give it all the time, of reality being like um, film. So you have, you, you have these discrete frames, and they're not actually connected. We connect them with our minds in order, very, very logically, very usefully, in order to make sense of reality, but they're not actually connected. Same thing with the future. And so that continuity is an illusion. And thoughts have no true, true as in no solid existence. And how does this help me you know, to know this? I think it just creates an enormous amount of space around a thought. If you're able to slow down enough to actually see, look at that thought, let's say a thought of anger, and you realize, oh, well, maybe this angry thought doesn't necessarily have to be followed by another angry thought, or a depressed thought, or a confused thought. What if understanding that these thoughts need me to continue, to continue their momentum, I let that thought drop? As compelling as it seems, as true as it seems, as right as it seems, what if I just let it drop? What if I shift it by giving rise to a wholesome thought? Or what if I realize even more closely, oh, this thought is empty. I don't need to get involved with it. So what if deliberately practicing my thoughts, I change my mind? And that was the main, the main story that I, that I heard of a South African man, Martin Pistorius, who, when he was 12, again, for no medical reason that they could find, began to lose control of his body. And over a period of months, I believe, but, but pretty quickly, you know, he first lost his coordination, then he couldn't talk, then he couldn't uh, walk. At a certain point, he could only make grunting sounds, then he couldn't even do that. He stopped being able to communicate. And he basically, um, got what is now called, you know, locked-in syndrome. And he went into what everybody thought was a vegetative state. He was alive, but there was no 
life that anybody could discern. And the doctor said to, to him, to, to his parents, we'll just keep him comfortable until he dies. That's probably going to be a year or so. And he lived for two years, three years, four years, five years. You know, and every morning, his father would get up and would take him from his bed and put him in the wheelchair. And they would wash him. They would, um, I'm not exactly sure how they would feed him, but they fed him somehow. And then at the end, they would move him back to the bed you know, every day. And it, oh, his father had to wake up every two hours to move him in the bed right, so he wouldn't get bed sores. Twelve years he was locked inside his body. And he was still unable to move or speak in any way. And everyone thought he was in a coma. He was unconscious. Instead, around year four, unbeknownst to anyone but him, he woke up. He gradually began to regain consciousness. But again, he couldn't tell anyone that this was happening. And so he would just lie in bed, unable to move, unable to speak, to do anything. But he could see and he could hear everything. He heard when one day his mother, out of desperation and out of love also for him, leaned over, over him and said, I hope you die soon. Imagine hearing your mother say that to you. And so, not surprisingly, he became very depressed. And the thoughts just swirling around in his mind were, you are trapped. You will never get out of this. You are worthless. Your life has no meaning. You're like a vegetable. She's right. You should die. You will always be alone. You will always be alone. You will always be alone. And I imagine that, and they had him actually in the program, he, he speaks with a computer like Stephen Hawking used to do. And they had had him speaking. And it, when, as I heard him describing this, I saw in my mind, I saw this long black tunnel, completely smooth walls, no break, no change of any sort. And the further down it you go, the longer it gets. He said, I was lost in the land where dragons lie and no one could rescue me. And perhaps not in such a dramatic way, but I think we've all been there at some point. This will never change. I will always be trapped here. And we are effectively locked inside our bodies, locked inside our minds, in their habitual, confused, reactive patterns. And we, too, find ourselves in that cave. And you know, we use this image in Zen, of course, going into the cave of the blue dragon. And we're snuggled right up to it, the sleeping dragon. And we know that in a moment it's about to wake up. And we know there's something we need to do. And we know that's where we need to be. Because it's the only way that we'll actually be free is to face that dragon. But everything really about our, you could say, ordinary lives, everything about our culture is saying, get out of that cave. You don't need to be there. But I think that's why we came here. That's why we do Sashin, to go deep into our being, where the space is very narrow, and the shadows are long, and there seems to be no escape. But some part of us knows that there is, in fact, a way out. And it sounds so good, you know, in the legends, when they have the hero slaying the dragon, it sounds so romantic and so brave. 
And then when we're sitting on our cushion, it's quite another story. As Hojin Sensei said, yes, I want this, but not like this. Not like this. That's, this is not what I signed up for. And so this was Pistorius' life, his prison, he called it. And, and you know, you think <laughs> a, a period of zazen is, is hard. Imagine a life. You cannot escape. You can't, he couldn't go on the internet. He couldn't turn on the television. In fact, the television was part of the problem. They planted, I don't know whose idea this was, they planted him all day in front of the television to watch Barney reruns. Can you imagine? He's saying, you, you have no idea how much I hated Barney. And he said, that's part of what actually brought him back. He said, enough. I am not going to watch one more Barney show. And so he decided that he was going to turn to these thoughts. That he was going to get close to them and see what they really were. And in one sense, you could say he, he had to. That's why I think you know, those moments in our practice when we have no choice, where we do feel trapped, I have come to have enormous respect for those moments. Because if we can just tolerate that pain, that discomfort, then the, the potential for change is most available. Because when we have a choice, when we can wiggle, we will. We will. It's very difficult to change. It's really until the moment when you, where you, you do reach bottom and you think, enough. I will not do this anymore. And so he really had no choice. Either he did something, or he, he died a slow, hellish death. Because it wasn't even he, that he could kill himself. He really was trapped. And so without any training, any guidance, he began to pay attention to his thoughts. And little by little, he began to see they got quieter. The more he turned to them, the quieter they became. They didn't have so much power. They didn't seem so meaningful, so real, so true. And around the same time, I don't think it's a coincidence, he began to be able to move his eyes. And so he began, he taught himself to read the time by looking at the shadows in his room. And so now he could locate himself in time, which gave him a sense of, of agency, of freedom. In the last talk, I spoke of the woman who, being unable to perceive time, found freedom. Pistorius found freedom in time, like being in that vast ocean and finding a log and seeing you can hoist yourself up on it and look around and, and, and locate yourself. And so he began to not just be, be born about in the current of his thoughts, but to actually, as I said, have some agency, to establish a direction. And so he began to be able to relate to his surroundings. And because he now could move his eyes, at a certain point somebody realized that and that he could communicate. So they began to, I think first they did it with, with written words and then they brought him a computer. And as his mind began to change, as his thoughts began to change, 
very organically, very naturally, his body began to change too. And so as he became able to speak, then he slowly began to be able to move. He enrolled in college. He studied computer science. He created a website. He wrote a book. And as all of this was happening, he also fell in love. And he got married. The one who thought would always be alone, would always be unlovable, found his match. And they're still married, living a more or less ordinary life. And so what makes any of us think that we are trapped? That there is no way out? And all of that said, so in that moment of Fayan saying, which is a moment, you know, again, all of us at, at, during practice have experienced, you have it, you don't have it. And, and since the two monks, I mean, really, they rolled up the blind exactly alike, how did he know? Is it just that he knew them from before and knew what each one needed? Or was he really saying, you know, one of you has it and one of you hasn't? And then why does, you know, the commentary say that you will then know, if you have your Zen eye open, you will know how Master Fayan failed. What was his failure? And in those, um, you know, as I said, very, very difficult, very challenging moments, of, of seemingly no escape. I remember so many times experiencing that as I was leaving the Doksan room. And I was enraged at being wrung out again. And I would remember, I would look up, you know, there's that Kuan Yin over on that ledge, and we would have a moment, Kuan Yin and I, <laughs> we would have a little talk. And um, at a certain point, I remember, and for a long time, I just railed, and I would come back to my seat railing. Sometimes you can tell that somebody comes and they just plop their, their zafu on the cushion. You're like, oh, they were wrung out. Um, I would just rail and then do that for a while until I settled down. And then I remember one day I walked out and the door closed and I looked up and I saw Kuan Yin and I realized there's a lot of energy here. I have a lot of energy right now. Why don't I take it and I actually use it? So I didn't see it. It doesn't mean anything about me other than I didn't see it. I am not yet clear. Do I want to see? Yes. So what if I take this anger, this raw energy, and actually use it? It shifted my whole practice. When they are rolled up, bright and clear is the great emptiness. The great emptiness does not yet come up to our teaching. Why don't you cast away emptiness and everything? Then it is so lucid and perfect that even the wind does not pass through. And Shibayama says that the blinds uh, separate inside and outside. And when they are rolled up, that distinction disappears. And everything is bright and clear. So when nothing is left, nothing including emptiness, when everything has been cast away, then who can speak of wind? 
of passing through or not passing through? Who can speak of passing a koan, not passing a koan? My breath is boring. These thoughts are endless. When a thought or the breeze fills all of your mind, then what is the burden? Where's the weight? I'll end with this poem by Octavio Paz, Wind, Water, Stone. Water hollows stone. Wind scatters water. Stone stops the wind. Water, wind, stone. Wind carves stone. Stone's a cup of water. Water escapes and is wind. Stone, wind, water. Wind sings in its whirling. Water murmurs going by. Unmoving stone keeps still. Wind, water, stone. Each is another and no other. Crossing and vanishing through their empty names. Water, stone, wind. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.